Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show, where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Last time on the Virtual Voyage, we were in Israel visiting our friend Rosa, a conservator who ensures the special finds at archaeological digs are properly excavated and cared for so that experts can study them and we can eventually enjoy seeing them. That was a fascinating conversation, and I'm grateful for Rosa for taking the time out of her busy schedule to show us her work. But today we're headed away south in Israel to Beersheba, and we'll again be meeting up with a special guest who will be our primary tour guide for the day. We're about to arrive at Tel Beersheba in the next few minutes, so let me take a moment to introduce the site and our guest. Beersheba was the southernmost city of the territory settled by the Israelites when they first came to Israel. That's why we hear the expression from Dan in the north to Beersheba to describe the land of Israel, Beersheba being the southern border, although present-day Israel does extend past Beersheba. We'll be learning a lot more about this site when we arrive there very soon and hear from Dr. Frederick Branfon. Dr. Branfon has a PhD in archaeology from the University of Pennsylvania, and he also has a law degree from UCLA and presently practices law in California. In the 1970s and 80s, and even as late as 1998, he helped conduct archaeological excavations at several sites in Israel, including Tel Beersheba. He even joined other archaeologists to publish a book on Beersheba, so he's quite knowledgeable about this site. Additionally, Dr. Branfon is the author of Intimate Strangers, a history of Jews and Catholics in the city of Rome, set to be released on May 1st. Well, right now we're just arriving at Tel Beersheba, so let's hurry out and meet Dr. Branfon. Ah, there he is, wisely standing in the shade as we're here in the Negev Desert. Dr. Branfon, thanks so much for joining us here today on the virtual voyage. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate this. Before we get into the archaeology of Tel Beersheba, tell us a little about this site. When was it first founded, and who are the major people groups who inhabited it? Well, we know the answer to the first question a lot easier than we know the, uh, the second question. It was first founded in around the 11th century BCE. And there is a small village, but a fairly well-organized village, uh, from that time period, uh, which would be, uh, in biblical terms, uh, the time period of the judges. Uh, there are there then uh, a series of uh, settlements during the time of the biblical monarchy, monarchies, uh, uh, which ended around 587 uh, BCE. There is a considerable, although strange, Persian uh, settlement uh, on the top of the Tell. Uh, then there was a, but we don't know who was there. We do know that the pottery is Persian. The people wrote in Aramaic, and we can't say who they were. Really, they were probably local, uh, but they used the contemporary pottery. Uh, similarly, there's a Hellenistic uh, occupation on top of the Persian. There was a Hellenistic temple, 
with uh, some figurines that were found there. Again, the people who were living there certainly were not Greek. Uh, they were probably local, but uh, they were participating in the Hellenistic civilization that was prevalent in the Eastern Mediterranean at that time. Above that, there's this small Roman fortress, which has Roman bath, whatever. That was probably, uh, that was probably occupied by actual Romans, that is to say, people who were occupiers of the land coming from Italy or mercenaries maybe, but we don't know, but probably Romans. On top of that, there was a, a Bedouin cemetery. And we know who those people are. Uh, the Bedouin community lives in the area. Could you talk a little about the geography here? What natural features give Beersheba its strategic location such that all those people groups would want to settle here? Well, you can uh, feel uh, the heat here. And you can also, uh, I'm sure it's not charming to have the dust blowing around a bit. Uh, we are in uh, what is known as the Biblical Negev, which is a band of geography stretching from the Mediterranean coast through to the um, Dead Sea. But it does not include what is the modern Negev. It's just a northern band south of, Ju- of the Judean hills. It is uh, semi-arid in its uh, climate. It has about 15 centimeters of rainfall per year. The site is located at the confluence of two wadis, that's Arabic, or Nakhalot, that's Hebrew. These are riverbeds that are dry for most of the year, but they run with water in the winter. And the wadi Beersheba and the wadi uh, Hevron uh, meet at the site of Beersheba. So apparently it was, uh, there was water. Uh, it had to be managed, but there was uh, water uh, which made it a, a site, uh, you know, be coveted. Uh, the last thing you should know is that most of the time, population in the land of Israel uh, was concentrated to the north of the biblical Negev. Uh, but at times when there was uh, prosperity and a time of population expansion, people had to find new places to live. Populations and settlements expanded into the Negev in the uh, Iron Age and in the Middle Bronze Age. Most of the time, population was north of Beersheba. As we continue here with our tour with Dr. Branfon here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, let's talk for a moment about the name, Beersheba. Obviously, it's a Hebrew name. So what's the translation and why is the city named that? Well, you know, we don't know, but we have some theories. Be'er means a, a well, and Sheva means seven. So it's a well of seven. The question is, well of seven what? And the most convincing uh, idea that I've heard is that it is a well of seven tribes, the well of seven families who shared this well that actually that we actually found and uh, was dug down to the uh, water table about 200 meters beneath the surface. So uh, quite a deep well. But at any rate, it was there, and, and uh, probably it was shared by seven families or seven tribes. So let's actually go look at the well of Beersheba since it's outside the city gates. 
Tell us a little bit about this well as we stand here, why it's so special, and also why it isn't inside the city. That seems a little strange that people would have had to come outside to get water, or maybe that's normal. For the most part, uh, wells were not used. For the most part, they were water systems. And there is a water system, an extensive water system, within the city walls of Beersheba that provides uh, water within the walls. Now, we can get to that later. But uh, because there was a water system within the city, there was no reason to have the well within the city also. And as a matter of fact, the well seems to predate the walled city by a couple hundred years. And it may predate the small village that I told you about before from the 11th century. Uh, the well may be the earliest artifact of the site. And it's quite clear that the city walls were built to avoid the well. And probably that was because there were seven tribes that used that well. And the people who lived inside the city, and most of them were probably not uh, farmers or peasants, so they were probably administrators. They didn't want to be serving these seven tribes within their city wall. They were doing something else. They were storing things. They, had, they were administering um, uh, armed forces. They were distributing food throughout the Negev. Uh, they were probably uh, maintaining a place of worship. And it was a small site. It was about an acre, two acres. Maybe. So they didn't need seven tribes traipsing through uh, their, their settlement every time they wanted water, which was pretty much all the time. So that's probably why it was outside. Well, now it's time to actually enter the city through Beersheba's gates. And I'm saying gates, plural, because there are two gates here that I'm seeing. It seems a little odd to me to have two gates. So first of all, why does the city have two of them? And while we're talking about that, could you also touch on the purpose of city gates at ancient cities like Beersheba and what would have happened at them? Well, first of all, the two gates is not unusual. You have an outer gate. We have here an outer gate. And the outer gate also avoids that well. You know, they, they, they built a gate outside the city walls, but they planned the city so that uh, the well would be avoided. There are two gates and a number of other sites in uh, the land of Israel, basically at Megiddo and at Gezer. And uh, it is understood, possibly, that all that these three city gates, and maybe the one at Hatzor too, were designed and built contemporaneously. That this is a matter of a city planning on a national scale. So you have an outer gate at Beersheba, and there are strategic reasons, but also because uh, that's what was done at that time period, roughly the early 9th century BCE, at other cities. Now you have the outer gate because you want uh, to provide an extra layer of protection. The city wall could be approached by an enemy directly, but if you have the outer gate, you have an extra layer of protection. A small, but it didn't cover the entire circumference. The outer gate is a passageway, as you can see, that leads up to the main gate. And it's about 50 yards long. If you were going to attack the city, of course, the most vulnerable point of attack is the gate, where you can actually get in. But if you, so the outer gate protects the inner gate. And what's more, what it is oriented so that you walk from east to west to get to the inner, inner gate. And if you are a right-handed 
warrior trying to attack the city, your shield would be in your left hand and your enemies would be on your right hand above you on top of the wall. In order to protect yourself from missiles or whatever being thrown down upon you, you'd have to move your spear to your less powerful hand. And of course, I'm sure they attacked with a few lefties as well. But um, the point is that the majority of the people were righties, and that's why the, the gate is oriented in that fashion. Well, let's walk through the city gates here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. And here with Dr. Brandfon, we're going to officially enter in to Tel Beersheba. Wow, there's a lot here. We can see remains of roads and homes and more. First, let's head over to the water system. That's always something I've loved here. At times, a lot of people would have lived in this city and a lot of water would have been needed. So, Dr. Branfon, how did the ancient inhabitants of Beersheba get all that water into the city? Well, it was quite ingenious. And uh, what you should know is that Beersheba is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Uh, It has been designated as a piece of world heritage by the United Nations uh, education uh, organization, along with Megiddo and Hatsur, because of the water systems. All three cities, Hatsur, Megiddo, and Beersheba, have elaborate water systems that allow people to live within the city walls and get water uh, from from outside the city, inside the city, so they don't have to go out. Even though there's a well right outside, they don't have to. Uh, that's handy in a time of siege, but of course, most of the time it's not a time of siege, but they still wanted water inside the city. The water system, the way it's built, is it is a uh, passageway uh, directed down through bedrock, and again, uh, some hundred meters down through bedrock, and a series of steps are cut through the bedrock, so uh, forming a uh, spiral as you walk down towards the bottom of this uh, pit that has been built, cut cut through the bedrock. And this is not a small pit. This is a pit that is, has a circumference, has a diameter, I guess, of about 20 meters, maybe maybe a little less. It's big. It's quite big. And you walk all the way down and around until you get to the bottom. When you get to the bottom, there's no water there. It's dry. But there is water at the two uh, wadis, the two uh, nachalot that I just told you about. And while they were excavating in ancient times to get to the bottom of this pit, they also were damming up the wadis so that when water did run in them in the winter, which was not all that often, the water would not flow past Beersheba. The water would be dammed up and would be backed up underneath the city and into a pool where they could get water. So the water system includes, number one, this large pit, at the bottom of which there's a tunnel, and the tunnel heads over to uh, the wadis, uh, and at the wadis, there's a dam. The water then would be would flow back into the, the city of Beersheba, and being collected there, it would be available for people to walk down quite uh, precipitous steps to get their water in water jars and come right back up. But they did it. They did it. Uh, They needed water. 
While not all of us may remember this, when we were at the Israel Museum at the beginning of our tour here in Israel, we got to see an original stone altar on display from Beersheba. Can you tell us about how that altar was discovered, especially considering I believe it was once scattered in parts, which seems really strange that they were then able to reconstruct that. And as we're talking about this altar, please explain a bit about the religious practice in general as we're here at Beersheba. At Beersheba, as you enter the city, uh, we passed it by. It's sort of behind us towards the gate area because we were in the in the northeast corner at the, at the uh, water system. But if we wander back, and it's not that far, uh, towards the gate, as you enter the gate, there are three very large storehouses just next to the gate. And these storehouses, each storehouse had three long rooms divided by columns. And it took years of excavating to clear these and figure out what was there and to uh, map them, photograph them, draw them. And they were all full of pottery, full of, full of storage shows. But at a certain point, all the pottery had been removed. The, the storage jars were in a museum in Beersheba. And we were ready to take a picture, a photograph, of all three large storage rooms from a balloon. But we had to clean the area because it had been excavated for so many years. And there's plenty of dust blows in all the time. There's plenty of dust. Uh, so we had to literally sweep them. Sweep down the rooms, of course, are there are floors and there are stubs of walls all around. The actual walls are ruined, but there are ruins of walls all around. And we asked, I asked uh, some of our volunteers who came from the University of North Carolina, who were remarkably big boys, uh, large and uh, energetic. Actually, the wrong people to do this, but I asked them to do it anyway, to brush the walls, get the dust off the walls. The walls are made of rubble, uncut stone, and they are covered with plaster. And of course, that plaster is uh, over 2,000 years old. Well, um, the students from the University of North Carolina went at those walls with their brushes uh, very enthusiastically and brushed the plaster right off the wall. But when they did, and they had no regrets about doing this whatsoever, they, they just thought that's all that stuff, we got to clean it up. When they finished brushing off one wall, they noticed that the stones were cut. The stones were uh, in you know rectangular or orthogonal shapes. And all the other stones that they'd ever seen and that they were seeing were just pieces of rock, rubble. And so they came to me and they came to us and they said, we think we've found something. <laughs> and indeed they had. So the stones that were part of the wall that had been sitting there for over 2,000 years uh, were cut stones of a stone altar, which we know was used probably up until the year 721 BCE. When it originated there, we don't uh, know. And they were jumbled up. The stones were not in the shape of an altar. They were jumbled up. But some of the stones were orthogonal, but they had projections on the corners. And these projections, which we know from uh, biblical texts, are called the horns of the altar. And the horns of the altar are mentioned throughout the Bible as, uh, as, as uh, places to have uh, uh, sacrifices sprinkled on the horns, 
And Eviatar, who is a, uh, a brother of Solomon, seeks to have uh, seek safety by holding on to the horns of the altar. So we knew that there was something called the horns of the altar, but we knew more than that because there were small hand-sized altars found at other sites which had these four projections. So we looked at them and we could say, those projections that we see now are, of course, life-size compared to the really small ones that people were, the incense altars that people have had, but they're the same. So we knew we had an altar there. Uh, we knew it had been cut up, dismantled, and put into uh, this wall and then plastered over. So someone was someone was hiding these stones, either because they didn't care about them and they just needed stones for a wall, or because they had been told that they, the altar had to be removed and maybe some year in the future they could take the, take the wall apart and put it back. They never did, but they could have did the, uh, the order, we believe, came down in 721 during the reign of King Hezekiah of Judah, who ordered that all uh, places of worship outside of Jerusalem be dismantled from throughout the kingdom, and including Beersheba. So apparently, that order was issued and carried out at Beersheba. The altar was removed from wherever it stood at the site and hidden in this wall. Now, once we dismantled the altar and put it back in its forbidden order, which had been forbidden in 721, we took the stones out and put them back. There were two things that indicated something about worship at Beersheba. One is that one of the stones had a snake carved into it. And the order issued by Hezekiah to dismantle the places of worship throughout Judah also said that the snake, the bronze snake that traditionally had been held by Moses during the time in the desert, which probably was not the case, but there was a, there probably, there was a bronze snake in the temple in Jerusalem. That should be put aside. People are worshiping it. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have that. So the snake in Jerusalem was perhaps put aside. The carved stone with the snake at Beersheba had also been put aside. And then when you put the altar together, there was a circle of burning, a black circle. The stones had been burnt in the center. And it was a small circle. In other words, uh, small animals were sacrificed on this altar. Uh, doves, perhaps. Entrails perhaps. We're not talking about whole animals. We're not talking about sheep or goats or anything like that. But sacrifice did take place, either doves or the entrails of animals. That's as much as we know. Well, no, there's one other thing. And that is that because the uh, order went down to dismantle all these places of worship in Judah, no altar had ever been found in Judah by archaeologists before we found this one. Except for one at Arad on the other end of the Negev, which was also an altar, uh, a place of sacrifice. And we then presumed, and we had pretty much the idea before we found this one, that part of the worship of ancient Israel included marking the borders, marking the southern border 
with uh, temples to indicate this is what we worship here. If you're on the other side of the border, you may worship something else. But as you enter the land, our land, from south to north, you are now coming into our, where we worship in this way, and here are our temples. As we finish up here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, Dr. Branfon, you certainly are the expert here, having been one of the lead archaeologists at Tel Beersheba. As we make our way back to the bus, what are some other exciting archaeological remains or discoveries that we should see here at the site? Well, you know, as you make your way back to the bus, you're going to have to imagine what you could have seen if you had been here some years some years ago. But one of the major finds at Beersheba is what was located beneath the city uh, that we that is restored and is there for tourists now. When we were excavating Beersheba, a couple of probes were made in a few areas, and it was presumed that the earliest settlement at Beersheba was the walled city itself. There was nothing prior. And I was told, as a matter of fact, in one area to just clean up this area, go down to bedrock, and we're done in this area. Unfortunately, when I cleaned up the area, I found an oven. There was obviously an oven and some pottery around it. So yeah, well, there were some people camping here, but you know, it's there's, there's nothing here. Just clean it up, go down to bedrock, we're done. So then I found a second oven. They said, well, you know, they camped over a period of time. There were a lot of, and then I found a considerable wall of a building. And we realized that we had to go underneath a large portion of the city that we'd already excavated. We had to go beneath the floors. And there we found a an entirely uh, new settlement from the 11th century BCE, which was a small village and a well-organized village. And the significance of this village is that it is one of numerous villages that were then subsequently surveyed and found throughout the land of Israel in the early Iron Age. And uh, when you add Beersheba to the uh, villages found in the Galilee and in the Judean hills, which and there are now you know, hundreds of them, uh, not all as extensively excavated as Beersheba, but many of them, what we see is what is what we call a settlement pattern. And that is that at that time period, the pattern of settlement was villages, not cities. And they were scatterings of uh, scatterings of houses, maybe organized a little bit. And this apparently was the earliest settlement of the land of Israel by the people of Israel that we know of. Prior to these to the discovery of Beersheba and these further discoveries throughout the country, it was believed by many archaeologists that there had been uh, a conquest of the land of Israel by uh, Israelite forces that was described in the book of Joshua, and that many cities had been destroyed, uh, and, the, and the settlement was one of conquest. With the discovery of Beersheba and many other uh, sites, it seems more reasonable to conclude that the earliest settlement in Israel was one of infiltration of people like people at Beersheba settling on the margins, in the Negev, in the margins of the habitable land and forming 
uh, a new type of settlement throughout the land of Israel, and that this is more congruent with what you find in the biblical book of Judges. This was, for me at least, a really significant find. If you have another moment, there's more, but if you don't, I don't know what I can tell you. No, please continue. What else should we see here? Well, at the top of the tell, at, at the Acropolis, there was a large building, maybe two or three normal houses wide. This building looks like any other normal building, except that it's pretty big. Not a lot was found in it. We don't know really what was found in it. What was, what was of interest was that it was excavated down to bedrock. That is to say, it was settled on the bedrock. If you go next door to a, to a house, it's, you know, they, they built their foundations in some rubble of an earlier period, but that's it. But this building, the entire area was cleared down to bedrock. They built the house, and then they built a stairway down into a basement. This is the only basement building that I know of in the land of Israel. We don't know what occurred in this building, but our speculation is that this is where the altar originally sat when people worshipped and sacrificed at the altar. And when the word came down, dismantle that altar, they did a very, very good job. And they cleared the area down to bedrock so that there was not a speck of where the altar was or the altar. And then they built this building on top. So that's another important find. As we finish up our tour here today, how can people learn more about you and also the upcoming release of your book, Intimate Strangers? Well, I, and it's, I find it unbelievable, but uh, I have a website for my book, and it's Frederick, F-R-E-D-R-I-C, Brandfon, B-R-A-N-D-F-O-N, dot com. And if you go there, you'll find out more about my book, which is a history of Jews and Catholics in the city of Rome from 139 BCE up until the present day. Dr. Branfon, thank you so much for leading us on a wonderful tour around Beersheba. We're grateful that you took the time to share your expertise with us. Well, thank you very much. I always enjoy talking about archaeology, about Beersheba, and I have really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue our adventures in the land of Israel.